Welcome to sermons from First Alliance Church, equipping you to become a fully devoted and faithfully engaged disciple of Jesus. Here's today's message. Well, welcome again to First Alliance Church at Home. My name is Andrew, and it's so good to be with you today, wherever you're at in your home or your apartment, and wherever you're at in life and on your journey of faith. We, this morning, are continuing our series in the book of Acts. And uh, as we've been watching what happened after Jesus died and Jesus rose, what is part two of Luke's gospel? That's what we've been considering today. And so uh, today we're actually diving into what is, in one sense, the first Christian sermon. You're going to hear a sermon on a sermon today. That's kind of cool. And we saw last Sunday uh, what started to happen at the Jewish feast of Pentecost as the apostles and disciples of Jesus were gathered to worship and pray. Something crazy happened. The Holy Spirit was poured out on them. And they began to speak in all kinds of different languages that people gathered for Pentecost from other places in the world could understand. And what happened was commotion arose. There was a scene and people started to ask questions and speculate about what is going on. And what we're going to see is Peter stepping up and giving the first Christian sermon. So, I invite you to have a Bible open as we prepare to receive the food of God's holy word together. Please do have the scriptures open to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to be reading from verse 14 to 39. And let's give ear because what we're about to hear is God's word. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross." But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave 
nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and he was buried and his tomb is here to this day, but he was a prophet and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would send your Spirit to be with us now as we dig into your Word and its implications, what what you are announcing to us, what you are indeed speaking to us, O Lord, this day, that it would result in transformation in our lives, that it would result in a glorification of you, Jesus, in our midst. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen. I want you to imagine that you were there on that day. You're a spectator in the crowd, and you're wondering what was going on. I think we can all relate to a time where we felt that. Something happened, and we were like on the outside looking in and wondering what on earth is going on, and you've got no idea. It's exciting and unsettling both at the same time. And we all feel a deep hunger to know what's happening. And I imagine that many of us actually feel that on a deeper level uh, when we think about the level of life and and of the world as as we look out as, as participants and spectators of what's going on. I bet some of us live with a deep hunger to know what is happening What is going on? Where is the world heading? Is the world just going to keep spinning madly on? We have a deep longing to know that life has a direction, that that there is a purpose, that there is some kind of explanation, that we're not just aimlessly floating around, but that there is a great purpose that encompasses our lives. It's so important, especially as for us now in a time of deep disruption in this pandemic. I mean, I don't think there's been a greater time, at least in my lifetime, where where people have been battling meaninglessness and, and despair and wondering what is going on. And there's good news for you 
and for me in our text. In, in Peter's first sermon, as he addresses really the question in everyone's heart, what is happening here? Peter doesn't just address what's happening at Pentecost. He actually addresses what is God's plan for the world? What is God's plan for the world? What is his eternal purpose? In this incredible sermon, Peter unfolds for us both God's plan and God's man. That's what we're going to consider today. God's plan and God's man. So they're all in Jerusalem at the Feast of Pentecost. Uh, Jews gathered from all around the world, and God chose this specific moment to really propel his plan forward. As we saw, a wind blows through the disciples as they gather, and they see, the text says, what looked like tongues of fire over their heads. It says they're filled with the Holy Spirit and they start speaking in all these different languages. And and the question we might ask is, how on earth is that part of God's plan? I mean, God's plan is to save the world, right? So, So what's all this business about the Holy Spirit and wind and flames? Well, Peter goes to Joel chapter two. He opens the scriptures and he says, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. So one thing to really note about this, uh, Peter is situating us in the last days. The last days. This means that the world will not spin madly on, but God is bringing the world to a critical point, which has already begun. And the last days for for Jewish people really meant uh, the time when God would kick his plan into high gear. And he would really act to save and redeem. So in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all people. And really in our sermon in Acts, we've been digging into what does that mean? That God would pour out his spirit on all people. And we've learned that the Holy Spirit is not a force uh, to be harnessed, but a person to be known and loved and related to, and that the Spirit is God's own personal and powerful presence. And what this is signaling to us is that God's Spirit will no longer just dwell in one place. You see, until this time, God dwelt among his people in a very specific and limited way. It was through the temple sacrificial system. And and in the temple or in the tabernacle, there was this place called the Holy of Holies. And that was where God's presence dwelt. And it was out of bounds. It was out of bounds except for one day a year, the high priest and only the high priest could go in and offer sacrifices on the day of atonement. And It was so out of bounds to humanity that the high priest actually went in with a cord attached to his foot. And the cord would go out into uh, the rest of the temple area so that if the high priest were to be struck down in God's holy presence because he hadn't quite done things right, uh, the others in the temple wouldn't have to go in. They could just pull him out. I mean, God's presence was, was seriously limited to this one place. Now, there's significance to the fact that Luke says what looked like tongues of fire rested over their heads. You see, fire in the Bible is a symbol for God's presence, holy, pure, consuming, powerful. So in the book of Exodus, we see God's presence as fire, fire in the burning bush, 
when God first started to appear to Moses. A pillar of fire protecting and leading Israel in the wilderness after they had been delivered from Egypt. Fire on Mount Sinai when Moses went up to receive the law. And then, after the reception of the law and the tabernacle temple system was set up, the Lord descended on it in smoke and fire, it says at the end of the book of Exodus. And get this, this is so cool. So once the tabernacle was all set up, uh, and you can see a picture of the tabernacle there on your screen, you can see that altar fire, right, in that courtyard. Well, in Leviticus 6, the priests are actually commanded that the fire on the altar may not go out. It needs to be kept burning perpetually. In, in, in Leviticus 6.13, it says, the fire must be kept burning on the altar continuously. It must not go out. And so this vocation emerges for God's people to be tenders of the flame, <laughs> tenders of God's presence because it symbolized, of the flame because it symbolized God's presence with them. Now, Let's fast forward again to Pentecost. Knowing this background about fire in God's presence helps us see what Luke's point is. His point is that now God's presence dwells among his people. Now there is a new temple. In fact, Jesus himself had announced that he was the new temple and now through him and in him, his people are also this new temple of God that houses the presence of God. That's the plan that Peter announces. That God's plan to pour out his spirit on all people is to dwell among us. It's incredible news. And we need to know this plan. We need to know this plan if we're going to live with direction and purpose in our lives as followers of Jesus. I mean, think about it this way. At Christmas, we celebrate God with us. At Easter, we celebrate God for us and on our behalf. And then at Pentecost, we celebrate God in us. Can you think of anything more glorious than the holy God of the universe taking up residence in your life and in my life. I mean, on one hand, it's humbling because I go, God, I am the most unworthy vessel to house your presence. And I think what Christianity does is in the midst of the religions of the world, it gives us not only the most realistic and, and really stark assessment of the human condition, that, that apart from God, we are wretched that apart from God, we are unclean. But then Christianity also gives to humanity the most dignity and hope to say that you were made for so much more than what you've yet experienced. In fact, you were made for God himself. You were made to dwell with God and for God to dwell with you. I mean, it's this beautiful picture. We've talked about how the spirit, the word spirit comes from the Greek word Pneuma for breath and the Hebrew word ruach. And I mean, think about air. Air is something you're in, but it's also in you. Isn't that cool? We were made for this kind of nearness to the loving, holy, and good God of the universe. It's incredible. And it means, my friends, that we don't need to wander directionless through life anymore. His presence gives us back our purpose because 
His presence is what we were made for. We were made by him for him to be with him. Let me show you what I mean. Way back in the first pages of the Bible, what we see is humanity and God living in a garden together, walking together in fellowship. And then if you fast forward all the way to the end of the Bible, what we see is a new humanity now redeemed through Jesus dwelling with God in a new city, a new heaven and a new earth. And this new city, let me tell you, looks a whole lot like a garden. It's got a river. It's got a tree of life in it. And God himself and the lamb are the temple and his presence just permeates and penetrates everyone and everything. I mean, he is all in all. Friends, that's the plan. That's where this is all heading. The world will not spin madly on. The injustice, the evil, the death and the estrangement we experience will not prevail. God's plan is to make a new heaven and a new earth where he will dwell in us and with us. And and here's the incredible news that's already started to happen because Jesus died and he rose and he sent his spirit on us. That's how we come into the already of the not yet kingdom. And it's such good news. That is God's plan. And Peter says in his sermon, God's man has made it possible. The plan is made possible by God's man. At the center of Peter's message, as he is filled with the spirit At the center of his message is that this critical moment of the outpouring of the Spirit is made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it all comes down to the identity of who Jesus is. Was he he just a man or was he more? And Peter announces that he was more. He was so much more. He ends his quote from the prophet Joel with these words. Check out verse 21 in your Bible. It says, And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, the Lord there is God. So he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he makes this claim in verse 36. If you skip down there, he says, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. That will be a stunning, scandalous claim in that day, just as it is today. That the man Jesus is the Lord. That this title that belonged only to the holy and living God of the universe would be applied to Jesus of Nazareth. This is a stunning claim. And Peter says it flat out. Jesus is Lord and he is Christ Christ is not Jesus' last name. You can't find him in the phone book under Christ. It's a title. It means Messiah or anointed one, the the long-awaited priestly king who would deliver God's people and set up God's kingdom. And what Peter is doing is he's showing that the whole Hebrew Bible, the whole Old Testament actually points to him and his coming. He's the king. He's the one we've been waiting for. And he became king in the most unexpected way, not by rising to power through a successful military or political career, but by dying on a cross. This is what makes the plan possible, that God's man died and he'd offered the atoning sacrifice for our sin. 
Let me just unpack that sentence. He offered the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Sin has a cost. Our rebellion has a cost. It creates this debt, and we can't possibly cover it. And so what happened is God stepped in, and he covered it for us. He offered the life of his son. And Jesus' death reconciles us. It restores the relationship back to God. It, it also restores our relationship to one another. It also restores our relationship to ourselves and to the entire creation. This is the atoning work of Jesus. And he is now risen and he is Lord. The bottom line is that God's man makes God's plan possible. And what we see in Peter's sermon and in the scene that unfolds is that this news, this announcement of God's plan and God's man demands a response. I I mean, this isn't just another highlight on your news feed that as you're scrolling, you kind of say, oh, that's cool, and then you swipe it and it's gone. No, no, no. The announcement that Jesus is Lord and Messiah needs a response. And that response is clear in the text, verse 37. The crowd asks Peter, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent. Repent means turn away from your sinful ways and turn back to God. And now repent is not a word we often like. I mean, we don't often like being told we're wrong. We don't often like being told, hey, you're actually heading in the wrong direction and you need to turn around. But if you are heading in the wrong direction, it is the most gracious and merciful thing to tell you. Like when a doctor tells you straight up, hey, you have cancer. You need to know. But the fact is, repentance is good news. And here's why. Because repentance means there is hope. Repentance means that A new direction is possible for your life. The script of your life is not set in stone. And just when it feels like you've hit a dead end and there is no coming back from whatever you're facing, there is no redemption, Jesus opens the door of repentance and it leads to a new way into a new life. Repentance means there's hope. It's such good news. So Peter says, repent, turn away from evil and turn back to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Again, the bottom line is you enter into God's plan that God would dwell among us through God's man, Jesus. It's in the name of Jesus and through faith in him that we enter into the plan and that faith is symbolized in baptism. Now, It's not lost on me that in our cultural moment, uh, to, to say that Jesus is the only way into God's plan sounds exclusive and mean to some people. I mean, one of the gospels that our culture announces is that all roads lead to paradise, right? Directionlessness is not really a problem in our culture because in the end, uh, we're all going to wind up in the same place anyway. But the gospel of Jesus says there is only one way, one direction, one person, one name by which we can be saved. And it's the last days. The world will not spin madly on. And Jesus is the way to enter into salvation. This is countercultural. 
You enter into God's plan through God's man. There is no other way. And, and believe it or not, it actually is radically inclusive because God's plan is for everyone. I love how N.T. Wright puts it. He says, the work of God is wonderfully inclusive because there's no category of people which is left out. Both genders, all ages, all social classes. But then he says it is wonderfully focused because it happens to all who call on the name of the Lord. It's inclusive of all people, but it's focused on Jesus. Again, to go back to our metaphor of the doctor diagnosing your cancer, uh, wouldn't you be a bit worried if your doctor said uh, in your prescription for a plan of care, he just said, oh, just do whatever because it'll all be good for you in the end. No, you want that doctor to lay out and tell you what is the way. And here's Peter announcing to us, this is the way. It's Jesus. You enter God's plan through God's man. And when we do, when we repent and we trust in God's man, we receive the gift of the Spirit. God takes up residence in our lives. We become temples of God, and and not just individually, not just personally, but together as the church. So, what do we do about it? Practically, a few things stand out as takeaways for us. The first thing is to repent and reorient. Repent and reorient daily. Now, some of us haven't yet started following Jesus. And Jesus is inviting you into faith. You haven't yet repented. And maybe your life is a mess. Maybe you're full of confusion. Maybe, yeah, you're feeling directionless. The good news is Jesus just welcomes you to come to him as you are, and he can put you back together. But what you need to do in the equation is is you do need to repent. Jesus has so much life and love and grace to show you, but, but he's so good. He doesn't force us. He doesn't force you to do anything. You need to decide. And let me just say, it's the last days. You need to repent. And I say that with so much love. Maybe you have repented, but you haven't been baptized. I mean, COVID has presented so many complications for us. We haven't actually done baptisms uh, for the duration of this pandemic. But guess what, friends? We want to be ready to do them when we can. And maybe you haven't taken that step of obedience and declaration to declare your allegiance and your faith in Jesus. We'd love to help you discover what baptism is and if that might be the right next step for you so you can connect with us. There's a link in the show notes that you can do that. But I want us to consider uh, what this means for us as followers of Jesus. Repent and reorient. I mean, maybe in your life you've lost that palpable sense that Jesus is Lord and Messiah. Maybe you've lost the daily sense of dependence and trust in him. Because let's be honest, the daily grind of life kind of brings us into a slow drift. We live in a world of idols and distractions. We live each day, it seems like we're launched into a tornado of hurry and appointments and responsibilities and demands. And and some of you are caring for your aging parents and, and some of you are caring for your kids who are just perpetually stuck at home these days. And we're just burned out. It's the easiest thing to lose sight of God's plan, to lose sight of God's man in that daily grind. And, and I think 
Even as Christians, the call is to repent and reorient. I mean, when Jesus announced in the beginning of Mark, in the beginning of Matthew, in the Gospels, to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, he was talking about an ongoing repentance. Repentance doesn't make us acceptable before God. That's not what makes God love us. Jesus has done that for us. But repentance is how we continue to reorient ourselves and come before God each day with a posture of openness to say, God, not my will, but your will be done. God, I screwed up in this yesterday. Oh, Spirit, empower me to be better today. Empower me to love and reflect you better this day. So we need to repent and reorient. Well, how do we do that? I think first, we need to abide We need to abide in God's presence each day. It's really interesting to notice that in Leviticus 6, the priests are actually commanded to put new firewood on the altar every morning. Check it out. Leviticus 6, 12, and 13. We saw part of this scripture earlier. In verse 12, it says, The fire on the altar must be kept burning. It must not go out. Every morning. The priest is to add firewood and arrange the burnt offering on the fire and burn the fat of the fellowship offerings on it. The fire, again, it repeats it, must be kept burning on the altar continuously. It must not go out. I think there's a a pattern here for us to apply in our own lives as we follow Jesus. That each morning we open ourselves before the Lord before we head into the tornado of the day that we pause and acknowledge and abide in the presence of our God. And not just his general omnipresence, but as Christians, his specific temple presence, his indwelling spirit. And ask him to fill us afresh to just claim the full inheritance that we have in Jesus as God's sons and daughters before we've even done anything in the day to receive and to abide in his presence. Now, in my own time, I find it helpful to ask some some basic orienting questions like, God, who are you? (laughs) I feel like I need reminding every day. God, who are you? What are you doing? Who am I? Um, who am I in Christ? What do you want for me today? What do you want to give to me today? And what do you want from me today? And the answer always starts with God's inviting us to be, be with him, to abide in his presence, to begin the day in the gospel truth that in Jesus, God is with you. Now, in a sense, This is our repentance from our independence, right? This is repentance from independence, that drive to go it alone, to get things done on our own and to leave God behind. We need to abide in his presence, know that the spirit indwells us and ask him to fill us. But there is another essential practice for repentance and reorientation. We need to abide in God's presence. We also need to absorb God's word. We need to absorb God's word. I mean, did you notice how Peter, filled with the Spirit, 
highlighting God's plan and God's man, used the scriptures to do it. He used the prophet Joel. He uses the Psalms of David. Friends, Peter knows the plan because he knows the scriptures. He can see the man clearly. He can see Jesus clearly because he knows the scriptures. And even as we abide in the presence of God at the beginning of the day, as we ask him, God, who are you? Who am I? What are you doing in the world? What do you want for me and from me? Uh, The answer to those questions doesn't come as a lightning bolt from heaven. It doesn't come from our own imagination. The answer comes to us from God's word, his revelation about himself. We need to abide in his presence and listen to what he says to absorb his word. Now, the inner witness of the spirit and the word of God always go together. Think about it like the two blades of a pair of scissors. They're bound together and together they are effective in doing their work. So it is with God's word and spirit. I love how the song we sung earlier talks about uh, Feast or receiving God, the food of God's holy word. Our daughter Emma is eight months old and she is starting to eat solid food and she has a bib with a trough. And let me tell you, uh, for those of you who are just starting on your Christian life, uh, just starting to explore the Bible, when we begin to eat the food of God's word, it's sometimes messy. We often don't know what to do with it. We're clumsy. It's like my daughter. I mean, honestly, the food goes in and it comes right back out. And by the end, the trough is just full and you're scooping this stuff out. It's disgusting. But we start small and gradually. We learn to eat just like a baby learns to eat. And the only way you learn to eat is by doing it. It's by doing it. And then slowly and gradually, you're going to start to see a foundation of God's word being built in your life. You're going to start to see God and yourself in the world differently. You're going to see things through the lens of scripture and the gospel. And you're even going to find that you're going to hunger for God's word. Friends, we need to abide in God's presence. We need to absorb God's word. Living this out, will lead to us knowing God's plan and trusting in God's man in such a way that you and I are going to live with a clear direction. We're going to be seeking first the kingdom of God. And it's it's as we do that together as the church, and, and my heart yearns for the time where we can do that in person together as the church, that's when others, too, will come to know God's plan and trust God's man. Will you pray with me? Oh God, our Father, would you make us a body of people so transformed and empowered by your word and spirit that our communities, our our nation, and our world may see and know Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more on us as a church and ways to connect, please visit us online at firstalliancechurch.org.